questions in the, or there were three questions in the question box, and they're very good questions. Let me have a little go at uh, trying to answer them. Uh, hmm. How about this one? If we have already been delivered from evil by Christ's death on the cross, why is it still so hard for us Christians to do things that please God? Okay, if we've been delivered by Christ's death on the cross, why is it so hard, why is it so hard for us Christians to please God? Well, if you're here the other night, I want to ask you, do you want to follow Captain Miller from Saving Private Ryan or do you want to follow Jesus? What is it that Captain Miller said to Private Ryan as he was dying? He said, earn this. That's not the gospel, is it? What does Jesus say? It is finished. And the reason that Christian people please God is because they trust Jesus, because Jesus died for us, because there's nothing we don't earn pleasing God. God is pleased with us because of Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 6, verses 28-29, uh, you can write these down look at later on, they say to Jesus, what do we do to do the works that God requires? Just to make sure I get it right, I'll read it to you. They ask Jesus, uh, then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, Jesus died for you, and because God has given you his spirit, you want to serve God out of gratitude. And so what it means to be filled with the spirit in Ephesians 5, or to walk, keep in step with the spirit in Galatians, is that the spirit of God will move you to want to obey God, to want to please him, and so on. But the reason that God is pleased, you, pleased with you is not because you do good things, but because Jesus died for you. So relax, enjoy that, live with gratitude. Next one. Ephesians 1, God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And then 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil is prowling around seeking to devour someone. Since Christians are predestined, can the devil actually succeed in devouring us? Is that possible? Well, predestination, it, we are told about predestination uh, so that we can live with gratitude and humility, knowing that we contributed nothing to our salvation, uh, knowing that we're saved by grace alone. It can give us confidence, that understanding, but not laziness, not laziness. And God's elect, God's chosen will be saved, but the reason they'll be saved is they will keep going, they will take the devil seriously, they will be self-controlled and alert. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, keep living the right way so as to make your calling and your election sure. God's elect will keep going, will take God's warnings about the devil seriously. One last one, why don't evangelical Christians exorcise the demons of sickness and disease anymore? Since Jesus and his disciples did it during Jesus' time. I understand that Jesus' priority was teaching the gospel, but why aren't we teaching and casting out demons of sickness? Well, first of all, we're not told to. Um, the word exorcist is actually only used once in the Bible in um, Acts 19 and it's used about the seven sons of Sceva who try to use Jesus' name and Paul's name and then the demon-possessed guy beats them up and the seven of them run out of the house naked. Uh, it's in um, Acts 19. Would have been an interesting thing to see. Um, Jesus did many things that we aren't to imitate. Jesus walked on water. 
The Apostle Peter raised the dead in Acts uh, 8 or 9, uh, Acts 9. So we don't do that. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is the Lord of all of the spirit world, therefore we should exercise... No, therefore we should pray to him about these things. And if someone, uh, if a person is troubled by a demon, we pray about it. Right? We, we pray. Uh, we're not told to exorcise uh, demons, but if someone is troubled, and I'm about to say that, that I believe that people, not Christians, but people can be troubled or possessed by some kind of spirit, we're told to pray, not to uh, speak directly to these spirits. We speak to the one who truly is in charge. So, three good questions. How about we pray uh, that God will help us to understand his word? Lord God, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. Please, through your spirit, give us this understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. About two years ago, when I just started this job, uh, I work as a bishop in the Anglican Church about an hour's, in my region is about an hour's drive south of Sydney. Uh, about the second week I was in the job, I was speaking in a, a little church in a little country town. And at the end of speaking, this kind of young mum, just a very ordinary, uh, bright, positive young mum with a little kid on her lap, walked up to me and said, um, I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but I was wondering if you could come over across the road down the street and pray uh, for our house. I said, uh, why? She said, because um, our house is haunted. I hope you don't think I'm crazy. And I looked at her and I thought, lady, you look like you should be, you know, a legal secretary or a you know, solicitor or something like that. You'd, she, she was not crazy. And I said, oh, really? Well, tell me a bit more. She said, well, I think it was my great-grandmother who had two children die in the house as little ones and she got involved in seances and all sorts of stuff trying to contact the spirits of these children and since then strange things have been happening around the... So what kind of strange things? She said, well, I've walked into my child's bedroom and there's been a kind of an apparition of an older woman sitting on the bed. I've seen people around the house, uh, things that wanted to take my baby out of my arms and then a light bulb blew. She said, I was in the garage throwing out some of my grandfather's stuff, both the grandparents were dead, throwing out some of my grandfather's stuff and um, her two-year-old who didn't talk, or hardly could talk at all and just wandered around the house, walked into the garage and said, don't throw that out, Jack would want to keep that and, and then just wandered off again. And and uh, she's kind of got my complete attention. And this is this sweet little blonde lady with the baby. So she said, could you... So I believe her. I do. And I went with her. And what happened? Well, I'll tell you tomorrow morning. I want to make sure you turn up. <laughs> now, I believe her. I believe her. And what I want to tell you is this. I believe... Um, why, now, why have I waited till talk five to tell you anything that's spooky? Why? I'll tell you why. Because I believe in all that spooky stuff, but it's not as important as where the real action is. 
you see. As soon as you hear a story like that, you think, oh, the two-year-old said, and then did his head spin around and then he vomited. And that's kind of, you know, whoa. Uh, how, um, uh, it's not as important as where the real action is. Because the real damaging work that the devil does, man, have I seen the devil do some terrible things in the two years that I've been in my current job. I've seen him get Christians fighting with each other and, and just demoralise and cripple churches. I've seen him lead or seduce ministers into committing adultery or crossing sexual boundaries and seen churches implode because of it. I've seen churches that are lounging in soft, useless hedonism and are no different to the culture around them. And in each of those cases, well, the first two, the name of Jesus is dragged through the dirt. In the second one, the name of Jesus is not taken seriously. I see the devil blind the eyes of people that I love so they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And all of that is so much more terrible than a two-year-old talking with a raspy voice. Do you see? The trouble is we keep, and I'm saying this again and again, we keep getting our attention dragged to where the real action isn't and we miss what's really happening. The devil is a liar, a seducer. And so I want to tell you, I believe in the occult, I believe in mediums, I believe in spiritualists, I believe in demons and ghosts and spirits. Uh, and the Bible tells me about those things and then says, stay away. And the Bible tells me enough, not to satisfy my curiosity, but enough that I know, stay away from it. Stay away. I believe people can be controlled by the devil and evil spirits. I believe the devil manifests himself in different ways in different cultures. And in some cultures, the devil does it more obviously, more, if you like, supernaturally. I believe the Bible tells me, I know, the Bible tells me that Jesus is Lord, the ruler of the entire spiritual world. And the proper response is not to flirt with this stuff. The proper response is to trust the power of Jesus, to pray, um, to ask that he would remove these things. And it is the work of God's spirit to rescue people out of the control of these spirits, to open hearts and minds and to see that amazing change that we've talked about, to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And what about Christians and the spirit world? And I know I'll speak to you a little bit about um, deliverance ministries. And it seems to be on the rise. It's on the rise in, in my country. Um, and I gather on the rise in, in Singapore as well. Um, and that is deliverance ministry, the idea of delivering Christians from the devil. Now, I want to say that there's a continuum in this. There are some people, and I, I have a couple of friends who, who would believe this, some people who believe, kind of are thoughtful about this and believe on some rare occasions Christians can be demonised. But it doesn't take over their ministry. They're not crazy and so on. But they're, they're, there's a kind of a sensible end of the continuum. And then the continuum goes right through to being totally wacko. Um, that's not a technical term. That's just what we say in Australia, if you know what I mean. Um, now, here's the thing. Let me show you some of the kind of abuses of where it ends up on the, on the wacko continuum. And you see why. We've got to be so careful about this stuff. As I read it, they... 
they kind of say there's a continuum in the devil or in demons' influence on Christian people. So I'll show you on the screen. The first one is to talk about oppression. And uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 38 is used here. Uh, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Okay, so that's oppression, being under the power of the devil. Incidentally, if you listened in the Mark chapter 3 talk, did you notice Jesus healed the people who had demons? It wasn't about particular sin. He healed them, like any other sickness. Anyway, we'll keep going. Okay, so there's oppression. The next step along the way is a foothold or the devil having ground. Ephesians 4.27, do not give the devil a foothold. The next one along is a stronghold. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So the devil has a stronghold inside you. And then finally you get to demonization or sometimes possession um, you, and, and examples used from the Gospels. But notice the problem. It's what I said on Tuesday night. It's when you use the Bible as a bag of marbles and just grab particular verses here and there, you can kind of make it say this. But you're reading into the text, not out of the text. Can Christians have demons? Well, when you get to kind of the, the crazy end of things, if you go, well, uh, demonbuster.com, um, uh, here it is. I'll show you again what I showed you on Tuesday night. Go to demonbuster. No, don't go to demonbuster.com. I'll tell you what it says. Uh, it says how you can and do have demons. Everyone has demons, no exception. This includes Christians. For those of you who demand to see a scripture before you can believe something, there are no scriptures that say you do not have demons. That should settle it. Good, that's, that's logic. Then they say your body's divided up. You're divided up into body, soul and spirit. Um, what does it say about your soul? Do you have a bad temper? That's a demon. Is there a mental illness in your family background? That's a demon. Do you have trouble serving God? That's a demon. Do you have problems of bad thoughts? That's a demon in your mind, your will and your emotions. And then I talked about the... They said there's two demons, Boyce, B-O-Y-C-E and Boyce, B-O-I-C-E, Two demons that interfere with electronic equipment, phone, computer, printer, automobile. Um, if, if something malfunctions, command these two demons to leave your equipment. In the name of Jesus, we get many emails saying this worked. Now, without a word of a lie, as I'm cutting and pasting this into my computer this afternoon, it went wrong four or five times. Um, but I didn't. That's all right. Okay, now, here's the thing. It, it, at one level, I kind of joke about this, but at another level, if you go to the website, there's a list of, they say, the following is our first basic demon list, which we cast out of everyone, we take through deliverance in the name of Jesus. And then they quote a verse about Jesus throwing out the deaf and um, deaf, sorry, the dumb and deaf spirit from Mark 9:25. And there are pages and pages and pages of demons. Um, hun literally hundreds of them. Um, the first list, the demons of alcohol, I'll just pick a few random ones. Alcohol, fear, excitement, insomnia, tension, um, quarrelling, stubbornness, um, the demon of fear of failure, the demon of pride, the demon of mockery, the demon of sorrow, the demon of tiredness, the demon of play acting, the demon of greed, the demon of fatigue, the demon of adultery, the demon of gossip, the demon of... Cigarettes, the demon of hernia, 
That's a tough one. The demon of deja vu. I'm sure they've heard that before. Um, the demon of lust. The demon of... Now, here's one that you can believe. The demon of country music. Seriously. Um, the demon of jazz. The demon of nosebleed. The demon of obesity. The demon of tuberculosis. The demon of schizophrenia. The demon of smoking. The demon of sprite. The demon of weeping. Now, I think they're serious. Here's the problem. What happens when someone genuinely with mental illness, like schizophrenia, comes along and then you tell them it's a demon? Uh, either they're pretending that the schizophrenia is better, or if it doesn't get better, they've still got the demon. And all of a sudden, whatever it is we do, and it's pretty hard to think of a sin or something, a problem that's not on this list, and I'm sure I could add more, uh, whatever we do is not our fault. Hey, the devil made me do it. It is very, very dangerous. I'll tell you how dumb it is, actually, to be honest. Just dumb. Um, they've got a, an MP3 sound file on the site, which is like piano accordion music, and that's a little tune, and it says, if you can hear the Oh, the Blood of Jesus MIDI file, and it gets under your skin, that's this little soundtrack that plays, it gets under your skin, don't turn your speakers off. The demons absolutely hate this song, or any song that is about the blood of Jesus. The more this bothers you, the more demon-infested you are. You actually could get some deliverance by having the tune playing in the background and some demons may actually leave your home or apartment too. Tape the song and play it in your home over and over again. Just let it play on your computer. Here's the bad news before you laugh too much. There are 1,100 people from Singapore who have visited this site. All right. Dangerous and dumb. Like I say, though, there's a continuum. I'm not saying everyone who believes that Christians can be demonised is like this, but I'm saying that it's, it's a scary kind of trajectory to be on. You've got to be careful. The New Testament nowhere says that Christians have demons, and we need to be alert to the lie of the devil, is what the New Testament says. Ephesians 4, 26, 27, it talks about dealing with anger and so on, and it's saying don't give the devil, devil an opportunity. Don't give him a, a topos, a place is the word, a place or opportunity to um, use that sin to divide the congregation and to cripple your Christian life. The gospels show demonization. In sorry, the, the gospels do not show demonization in terms of particular sin. It manifests in people being sick. Jesus casts out demons, yes, but for people with sin in their lives, he calls on them to repent and turn around and believe in him. Satan is explicitly said to have entered one man, and that is Judas. And Judas was not a Christian. Um, uh, we're not told how these people came to have evil spirits, the ones that Jesus and the apostles heal. Um, Jesus treats them as victims rather than particular sinners. Uh, now, here's the problem. With deliverance ministries or many of them, not all, but many, what can happen is that this whole kind of casting out exorcism thing takes over and becomes the focus of what's happening. Um, and it's, uh, you know, um, it, it becomes, sorry, it becomes the focus. And, and the more demons you find, the more you find, and it kind of feeds on itself. How does it end up happening? Well, didn't you just hear it? Little boy talks in old man's voice, head spins around, all that stuff. Isn't that a lot more exciting than just read your Bible and do it? 
Well, actually, it's not, but it sounds that way, doesn't it? All right. So, uh, we need to take responsibility for sin in our own lives. We need to pray, to ask for God's help, to repent, to turn away from sin. Ask that God's spirit would be at work in us. But I do say it's not always quick and easy. With deep-rooted sin, with deeply damaged lives, it can take time and much prayer to start to put the pieces back together. I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying I think this, it's a wrong um, alleyway to head down. And the end point, you, I, the end point, you see the problem, with the end point with deliverance ministries, so often they end in fear. And that Demon Busters website has a, a number of prayers that you're supposed to pray every day and there's a whole long mantra asking for protection from all these kind of weird things and so on. And the feel of it is fear. If I don't kind of cover myself in this uh, cloak of prayer that I, I'm in great danger and if you belong to Jesus, you need not be afraid of the spirit world. Okay, as I said, um, the best book to read on it is by David Powlinson. We got how are we going there? Yep. The best book to read on it is by David Powlinson, um, P O W L I N S O N, Power Encounters. Um, it, it's out of print, but you can probably get it on Amazon or on the net. Okay, long introduction. Uh, what does the New Testament actually say about spiritual warfare? Have you got your Bible open? The book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, a number of churches in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and the way that Ephesians works, Paul sets up, explains to them the great things that God has done for them in chapters 1 to 3, these great statements about how God has blessed them and blessed them with every spiritual blessing. Um, and it's kind of working that through and, and it's, it's like the theology section showing what God has done. You could almost call it about being seated with Christ in chapter 2, verse 6. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Then from chapter 4 through to 6, verse 10, he talks about living out the implications of that. The NIV translates the word as live, but what Paul literally says is walk. Walk out. How you live. Walk the implications of that. Uh, five different times in the letter he talks about walk this way. So what's God done for you? Um, how are you to walk that out? And then you get to 6 verse 10 and he says, not walk, but stand. Stand firm. In fact, four times, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, he says, stand. Stand firm. And that is, you're in a battle. You're fighting with the evil one. Stand firm. Put your armour on. So what does spiritual warfare look like? The rest of tonight's talk, tomorrow morning, we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through to 20. Tonight we'll just look at um, verse 10 through to 13. So what does he say? What does it look like to live in the spiritual war zone, to um, stand in terms of spiritual warfare? Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In verse 10 he says, be strong. It's actually in um, a passive voice, which it, what it literally says is, be made strong, or God will make you strong, or look to God to make you strong. And what Paul's doing here, just see if you can switch on with me on this, it's a little bit hard, if you miss it, 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 it just I'll come back, but let me just show you what Paul's doing here. He's talking about the power of God and then the enemies that we face that have been defeated, and he's actually echoing back to chapter 1. 
It can be a little bit hard to see it because the NIV just changes the translation just a little bit. It's, it's accurate, but I'm just, let me just show you in the New American Standard Bible, which is really kind of a literal translation, and I'll show you on the screen, Ephesians 6 verse 10, and I'll show you these two things. What it says is, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right, the strength of his might. Put on the full armour of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces in this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Um, okay, so he says, be strong in the strength of his might and... The great enemies are the rulers and the powers, these nasty spiritual forces that are kind of there. Now there, that's an exact echo of what he says in chapter 1. I'll show you on the screen. What's he say? In, in the second half of chapter 1, he's praying for the, for the Ephesians. Prayer that we should pray for one another. He prays that God would switch on their minds, that they'd know the truth and that they'd know the power of God. See verse 19, that they'd know what is the surpassing greatness, chapter 1 verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. What's the power? God's power is at work and available for us who believe. And what's that like? These are in accordance, verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of of his might right? the strength of his might that same phrase again and what is the strength of his might which he brought about verse 20 which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as in his right hand in the heavenly places that same power the strength of his might that raised Jesus from the dead is what is at work and is available for us and notice where he seated Christ, verse 21, 121, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that he's named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Those same nasty, scary spiritual forces, and Paul uses that phrase again, rule and authority, Jesus is way above all of that. And that is why we need not fear the spiritual world. You belong to Jesus, there is nothing to be afraid of. Incidentally, as you turn back to chapter 6, have a look at um, chapter 2, verse 6. I finally understood, actually understood something, uh, learned something new today, and that is, I think what Paul's saying is, the reason he said God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, it's a way of thinking, and that is, you've got the spirit of the power of the air, and the heavenly realms are there with the powers and authorities, the kind of these nasty spiritual forces, and Jesus is seated way above them. And where has God seated us? With Christ. Do you see? We're actually above... The way to think spiritually is we are way above them. Why? Because we belong to the Lord Jesus. So do not be afraid of the spiritual world. But what does Paul say? Get your armour on. Get your armour on. Why? Because verse 12, our struggle... Um, Literally, the word is wrestle. It's like, you know, it's hand-to-hand combat. Our struggle or our wrestle is not with flesh and blood, or not, not only with flesh and blood, but with these powers, these things that live in the dark world, these nasty spiritual forces with the powers of darkness. And we need to be able, verse 11, we need to be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Against the devil's schemes.
Uh, or you could translate it as craftiness or deceit. Craftiness or deceit. Now last night we saw um, in, in 1 Peter, we saw Peter talking about... Um, well, Peter particularly picks up the idea of physical persecution coming from the, de- uh, from the devil. But Paul here is talking about the devil's schemes. And that is when the devil comes to tempt you, to trip you up, to catch you, to destroy you, it will be subtle, sneaky. What is it that Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, how, 3 verse 1 says, how is it that the devil is introduced? We're told Genesis 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And it's the devil who takes on the serpent, more crafty. In fact, I don't know if you noticed uh, last night as we went to, to Genesis 3, uh, my friend Peter Bolt has shown me uh, there's at least seven different kind of subtle strategies that Satan uses with Adam and Eve in just a few verses. Just listen to these. First of all, he questions God's word. Has God really said? Then, secondly, he denies it outright. And then, thirdly, he questions the wisdom of God. Does God really know what he's talking about? And then he questions the goodness of God. Does God really want what's best for you? And then he promises greater wisdom and greater pleasure if you step away from God. And he focuses on the senses rather than on God's promises. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, how does it feel? Don't think, feel. And seventh, he focuses on the present rather than the future consequences of disobeying God. All those little subtle things, all there in just a few verses, and they're all alive and well. They're all golf clubs that he pulls out of his bag to use. I thought what I might do is just go through and give you uh, six examples of... um, Sorry. to look after my throat. I thought I would do is go through and give you six examples of Satan's um, craftiness or scheming and see if you recognise any of them. They're things that when they turn up or when you're in the middle of them, it's so easy to miss that it's of the devil. But when you've actually got your eyes open and your Bible open, it kind of it smells of sulphur, you know, straight away. First one, Christians fighting with each other. Oh, doesn't this one pop up all the time? The book of James, chapter 3, verse 14 says, But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. Christians fight with each other. And so often we fight about stuff that's stupid or unimportant. And do you know what? Christians fighting with each other cripples churches. It does. It only takes a few, a small percentage of people in a church to be fighting with each other and the church is useless. There are churches in my region, we're taping this aren't we, Okay. There are churches in my region that have been closed. 
those in authority have closed them down because of the way that people were behaving. What does James talk about? Bitterness, selfish ambition. And, and, and when you're in the thick of it, it's so easy to think that you're right. Oh, I'm right. We are kind of... A, a, and the fights I've seen in 25 years, very few of them have been about, did Jesus rise from the dead? I'm on. If you're going to have a fight about the resurrection, let's go. But we end up fighting about carpet or money or, you know, trivia. The Apostle Paul understood. And what he understood is it's essential that we be quick to forgive each other. Let me show you what he says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. He says... If you forget, and there's been kind of falling out and difficulty between him and the Corinthians and within the church, and Paul knows, got to fix it up quickly. We must forgive each other. He says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, uh, sorry, if you, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Do not fight with other Christians over trivia, over stuff that's unimportant, over selfish ambition. Okay, that's one. Second one that comes up in relation to the devil is anger. If you've got Ephesians open there, just have a look at Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. The word topos just means uh, place, opportunity, or, or foothold. Now, is anger always a bad thing? No, anger can be a good thing, can't it? How do I know? Well, the Lord Jesus got angry. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is angry with the religious leaders and their hardness of heart that they want to use the man with a crippled up hand. They want to use him as bait rather than see him healed. And Jesus is angry. Or in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus is angry when he sees God's temple turned into a market and God's name dishonoured. He makes a whip and clears the temple. Uh, it, Jesus is he's angry about the right things, injustice, hard-heartedness, dishonouring God. Unfortunately, uh, my anger is usually selfish. My anger is about when I don't get what I want or when someone else hasn't done what I think they should do or my expectations aren't met or that's, that's why I get angry. And that's why James tells us in chapter 1, nine, verse 19, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Almost always, when I get, almost always when I get angry, it's for the wrong reasons. And what's Paul saying? The devil will grab a hold of that and use that, that's, that pride, the self-righteousness in it, the anger, and, and wreck your own life and damage the church. And I figure there's actually two kinds of anger. There's, there's hot anger when you do things kind of impulsively, um, Actually, I saw a story about an angry man the other day. It kind of um, jumped out. Did you notice? It, it might have made the papers in, uh, in Singapore. Um, Beijing, 24th of May this year. Here we go. Um, man shoves would-be suicide jumper off bridge for holding up traffic. 
<laughs> I thought, this man was angry. Uh, how's the story go? Um, it's from the, um, the uh, newspaper in England, reported it on the net about China. A Chinese man whose threat to commit suicide held up traffic on a busy bridge for five hours was shoved off the structure by a furious motorist. Liang Jiang, however forgive the pronunciation, Liang Jiang, 66, a retired soldier, broke through a police cordon, reached out his hand to shake the hand of the would-be jumper, Chen, uh, before pushing him off the bridge. I pushed him off the bridge because jumpers like Chen are very selfish, she said. Their action violates a lot of public interests. Mr Lai was quoted as saying, as saying by the Chinese daily newspaper. He added, they do not really dare to kill themselves. Instead, they just want to raise the relevant government authorities' attention to their appeals. Chen fell only 10 yards onto a partially inflated emergency air cushion and was treated in hospital with wrist and back injuries. Mr Lian was detained by police. Five hours waiting? I don't think any jury in the world will convict him. But what's, he, uh, what's Paul saying? With hot anger, deal with it that day. Deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger means deal with it quickly. Go and see the person, speak to them, forgive them. Don't let it fester. You know, there's, there's kind of cooler anger as well, really. Um, I think it comes as you get kind of middle-aged. Like, is it just me or is it lately the world's just like full of idiots? Is it, is it just me? Or does it just happen when you kind of hit, get near the big 5-0? What do you reckon, Pastor Chris? Do you think the world's full of idiots all of a sudden? No, you're not background grumpy like me. I'm background grumpy. Just kind of this low level, the world's full of idiots, grumpy. And, and if that's you, get rid of it because the devil loves that kind of stuff. In fact, look at what Paul's teaching us about the way we, be, way we treat each other in the church. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, look at um, verse 26, and I'll just keep reading with you, and you see it's all about relationships and how we treat each other. And look at, the bo- at both the spiritual powers are there. Um, okay, so verse 26, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Deal with it. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Don't steal from one another. Do not let, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And speak to one another the right way. And then look who's next. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form. And when we treat each other the wrong way, it grieves the Spirit of God and gives the devil an opportunity. Can you see how much it matters the way we treat each other? Third thing about the third crafty uh, appeal. I speak to the men, but I guess uh, the ladies might want to transpose it a little bit. But what's crafty, what sneaks up on us, what we won't see is, gentlemen, when she turns up, she won't be wearing a red asbestos tracksuit. There'll be no horns and no tail. She won't have smoky breath. She'll be as sweet as honey. And she'll be at the office 
and she'll understand you. In fact, she'll agree with you when you say, my wife doesn't understand me. And we all know that's a lie because your wife understands you exactly. That's the problem. But, um, (laughs) and she'll say, yes, that's true. Your wife doesn't understand you. And at first you'll accidentally bump into her and look into her eyes and she will even smell good. And then you'll deliberately bump into her and linger after meetings as you talk with her and then begins a whole series of little compromises, deliberate decisions and you end up in adultery or in sexual sin. No one ever makes one decision to commit adultery. It's dozens, hundreds of little compromises. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and the mind justifies what the heart desires. I think the scariest story in the Bible is the story that you find in 2 Samuel about David and Bathsheba. David's life as he walked with God up and up and up and up to the peak of the nation. And then in that one incident, he makes a whole series of wrong decisions, does the wrong thing a number of times and, well, his life's a slow motion train wreck after that. He's out, well, first of all, he should have been uh, out fighting with his army. Instead, he's doing the Hugh Hefner thing with his, you know, kind of in in the afternoon, he's just had a little snooze and he's wandering around his dressing gown on the roof and he sees the woman. That's the wrong thing to do. Sees the woman has the opportunity to walk away and says, no, who is she, finds out, has the opportunity to do nothing then and then sends for her and and all those decisions. And I thought later, after after he's done it all, I thought, what's wrong with David? Did David think that, like, God wasn't going to see? What's wrong with him? It's like, hasn't he read Psalm 139? Where can I go from your presence? If I go across the ocean, you're there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, you're there. If I go up to the sky, you're there. You're there everywhere. You even saw me before I was born. You know my going out and my coming in. You know everything about... What did David think? Hadn't he read Psalm 139? And then I went and checked. And you know what? He wrote it. (laughs) Don't you think that's troubling? I'm serious. The man who wrote that psalm committed adultery in the presence of God. Why? Because sin is seductive. And the devil leads us on with honey that will destroy us. Will you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? I want to show you a very important thing about spiritual warfare. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Negotiate and manage sexual immorality very carefully. No, he doesn't, does he? What does he say? He says, flee, run away from sexual immorality. Why? Because you can't negotiate with it, you can't manage it, you just run from it. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man man commits uh, are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Stay away from this sin. Don't make those first compromises. 
And then he says, God's positive about staying, about staying pure. Now for the matters you wrote about. So you've got, you've got sexual sin, if you like bad sex, then good sex. First chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry. I think that's what the um, Corinthians were saying. It's good not to get married. Uh, but, but Paul says, no, 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 verse 2, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now we come to some very important verses. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that what? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now what that means is it is a very important part of spiritual warfare that married couples have lots of sex. So... Um, Gentlemen, it is your duty to care for your wife's... Isn't this a great verse? <laughs> Gentlemen, it is your duty to care for your wife, uh, your wife's physical, emotional, sexual needs. You should report early, offer overtime, and be enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Ladies, it is your duty to meet your husband's needs. Now I say it in all seriousness, married couples, keep each other pure, uh, avoid the temptation that Satan brings because of lack of self-control, lots of sex. Okay? Gentlemen, it's a wonderful verse, isn't it? Uh, can I just say, if you do come home and say, okay, spiritual warfare time, you have five minutes to prepare yourself, um, <laughs> you... You probably will not get as much benefit as if you took the time to, you know, just kind of music, lights, all that kind of thing. Um, not saying I always do that, but I'm just saying, you know, if you... Anyway. Okay. Very important little thing about purity, the devil, self-control. Thank you, Jesus. Excellent. Okay. Now... Number four, and this is, this is a difficult one, and that is, in my country anyway, I don't know what happens in Singapore, but in my country there are many single ladies who would love to be married. And there seems to be a great shortage of Christian men, or at least Christian men with a starter motor that works, because um, they're just don't seem to be guys who want to take the initiative and and I know a number of lovely Christian women who are single and don't want to be and there is a great temptation to see the non-Christian men around who think a Christian woman's wonderful now the scriptures say 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 if you have the choice of who you marry you should only marry in the Lord but there's a great temptation because the Christian girls meet the man who's not a Christian and he's such a nice guy, isn't he? 
He listens to her. In fact, he's the kind of guy who would turn the television off to listen to her. Incredibly nice. And the great temptation is to believe that kind of honeyed seduction that it'll all be all right. But what it will mean is living a Christian life alone, praying alone, going to church alone, trying to teach your kids about Jesus alone. And sometimes, sometimes it works out. But I've lost count of how many Christians have left the faith after becoming romantically, sexually involved with a non-Christian. And God calls us to put the armour on before we meet him or before we meet her. And I say that aware of just how much heartache there is with my, uh, well, Kathy and I, with our female single friends who we love and, and we feel their heartache. And yet they need to not believe the seductive trap of the devil. Fifth thing, in all of Australia, there is no one who is greedy. No one's greedy in Australia. In the Christian church, no one's greedy. Um, I've been in ministry work for uh, 26 years, and uh, in all of that time, I've never had anyone come to me and want to talk about the sin of greed. I've had people come and kind of confess, not in the Catholic kind of confession way, but come and talk about or want help with all sorts of things that they've done. But no one's ever come and said, Al, I think I'm greedy. No one's greedy. They just need a little bit more. If we just had a little bit more, then we'd be happier. Then we'd be more secure. Then it's a great lie of the devil. What did he offer the Lord Jesus in Matthew 4? All the kingdoms of the world. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Whose trap, I wonder? And a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it's not money, it's the love of money. There are all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We all just need just a little more. And you know a good test, actually? If you can give money away, I mean slabs of it, so it actually, you actually feel it, if you can give it away joyfully and enjoy it, you may have actually beaten greed. Can you do that? Can you do it? Last of all, number six, I mean they're endless, but last of all, number six, pornography. Pornography is a plague in my country that damages the lives of so many people, <laughs> not only men, but mostly men. And what does it offer? Oh, this is of the devil. This is of the devil, because what it offers is it offers power and intimacy and excitement, and it seems harmless. After all, hey, it's just you and a screen or you and a magazine or you and a movie or whatever it is, it just seems harmless. But, oh, the damage it does. It is poison. It's honey-coated, honey-flavoured poison. So what does it do? It never delivers. It never delivers satisfaction. It separates 
intimacy from sexuality and so it's just empty. It's like the ghosts in the, the Casper the Ghost movie. Um, his old uncles used to eat food and they were ghosts. They'd eat food and it would just go in their mouth and then drop, drop straight on the floor. It never actually filled them up. That's what pornography's like. It never delivers and so people get dragged into wanting more and more and more and harder and harder and harder stuff. It changes the way that you think about sex. It changes the way that you think about women. It, it poisons you. It begins to kill you emotionally. If you're married, it'll damage your marriage. If you're not married, it'll change your whole wrong expectations about the partner you may have one day. And if you're single, if you know anything about motor cars, don't rev the engine in neutral. Right? It's poison. And yet, it's of the devil and it's everywhere. There's six things, right? Six things. Fighting, anger, sexual sin, marrying someone who's not a believer, greed and pornography. And in the cold light of, well, not the cold light of day now, is it? The bright neon light of the Palace of the Golden Horses, it just seems blindingly obvious, doesn't it? You say, well, we wouldn't fall for any of those, Al. Really? Because I'll tell you what, if you're not self-controlled and alert... The devil will have you for breakfast. You have to put your armour on. See verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the, day of, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. What does the evil day or the day of evil mean? Uh, just quickly, three, three possibilities here. It could mean um, every day is evil in this present evil age. Other people have thought it means a particular kind of time of tribulation or something before the Lord returns. Or the third one, it could mean a particularly tough time in the life of a believer. I think it's likely a combination of the first and the third one. That is, every day is evil in one sense in this present evil age before the Lord returns. But I think there will be particular tough times in every believer's life real times of heartache and pain and suffering and you're kind of wondering what is wrong okay and he's saying get ready for it uh, as paul says put on the full armor of god the word is panoply panoply um, which actually meant full armor that a roman soldier wore and probably, as Paul says later, he's in chains. I reckon it probably wasn't hard for Paul to think of that. He's probably chained to one of these guys. You know, he's looked over and said, ah, oh, okay, uh, the uh, belt, yeah, the helmet, yeah, okay. Like, and he's just looked down at the, the bloke. He's actually the guy he's been sharing the gospel with for the last eight hours, probably. But anyway, um, so put on the full armour of God. And here's the question. When do you put it on? When? Well... I have a quote from one of the great thinkers of our time, Mike Tyson. Um, are you familiar with um, Iron Mike? We got there a picture of Mike. Okay, here's Mike. Um, do you know there is actually a website dedicated to quotes of Mike Tyson? Okay, um, and he, here's one I like. I don't try to intimidate people before a fight. That's nonsense. I intimidate people by hitting them. <laughs> Think, yeah, that's true. If you've seen him do it, he can do it. But the one that I wanted to draw your attention to, the picture, the, the quote, Mike Tyson says, everybody's got plans until they get hit. 
Everybody's got plans until they get hit. And what's his point? He's absolutely right. And that is, when you get hit and you're in the middle of suffering, and it, and it, it really is tough, you forget things. All the plans you made, all the things you've thought, all the it's out the window when you're squealing, because it hurts. Unless you've hardwired things into your head. Unless you've made it part of you, unless you've, in Paul's way of speaking, unless you've put on the armour. To try and put it on in the middle of the fight is too late. You've already lost. What does the armour look like? Let me just read it and then we're finished. The armour, um, and we'll look at this tomorrow morning. Ephesians chapter 6, and let me read to you from verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let us pray now. Now, Father, we pray, please, that we may learn to put on the armour, the gospel armour that you provide. We ask, please, that you would open our eyes to the devil's schemes, that we may stand strong and live lives that bring glory to our Lord Jesus. Please, our Father, if we are flirting with the devil, if we have been seduced, if there is sin in our life, please show us that so that we might turn away from it and find forgiveness. And we ask all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.